What's up, y'all? It's Zappy Living Corporate. And look, uh, it's Tuesday. The day of this recording is May 4th. Um, we have uh, so may the fourth be with you. Uh, we have um, incredible guests every single time we we uh, come on, we come to y'all with something. And uh, today is no different um, because what we're trying to do is what we always do, right? Which is center and amplify marginalized voices in the workplace. Now, uh, I would like to think the living corporate is a little bit unique in that, in that we're um, we're having these conversations, um, but we're having these conversations. Not only having these conversations, but we're and that are centering marginalized voices, but we're having these conversations with marginalized identity groups, right? So um, a lot of times when you think about this diversity, equity, inclusion space, um, it's folks who don't look like me using fairly esoteric, like heady language to describe things that they really don't experience, right? Like not like not to put too fine a point on it. I'm just, look, I'm just gonna be honest, right? Just gonna be a straight shooter, okay? Um, and um, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we've been able to have incredible guests um, that have not only the lived experience, but have uh, the practical knowledge and uh, expertise to talk about real subjects. And so that's why our tagline for Living Corporate is Real Talk in the Corporate World. Now, look, some of y'all been listening to us, been rocking with us for a while, but every episode is uh, somebody's first episode. So I just want to make sure I kind of level set a little bit. So with all that being said, I'm really excited to have our guest today, Mary Frances Winters. Mary Frances Winters is the founder and CEO of the Winters Group, Inc., a global organization development and diversity and inclusion consulting firm with over 35, count them y'all, 35, longer than I've been alive, 35 years of experience. She truly believes that diversity and inclusion work is her passion and calling. She's been dubbed a thought leader in the field for the past three decades and impacted over hundreds of organizations and thousands of individuals with their thought-provoking messages and her approach to diversity and inclusion. Miss Winters is a master strategist with experience in strategic planning, change management, diversity, organization development, training facilitation, systems thinking, yo, sh- shout out to systems thinking, qualitative and quantitative research methods, and she has extensive experience in working with senior leadership teams to drive organizational change. My goodness gracious. With all that being said, Mary Francis. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no you da- you're, you're definitely dating me, but that's all right. I'll I apologize. I, didn't, <laughs> I wasn't trying to date you. I was trying to, forgive me. I was trying to speak to the the depth and breadth of, of the work that you've been doing. Because I think a lot of times it's easy, you know, kind of speak like pausing on, on just like on this conversation, just kind of like thinking about like generational tensions. Right. So like, mm-hmm. I think there's like this, there's a lot of frustration sometimes with folks who like millennials, you know, if the folks like in the um, you know early thirties or even like mid twenties to late twenties crowd who just think that like all these frustrations that we're seeing now are new, right? Like, but there have been folks who have built foundations before us that allow us to actually move forward. And so it's just incredible um, that you've been in this space and doing this and um, for a significant amount of time. Um, I, I don't believe that should be taken lightly at all. So well, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I, I accept it with honor and respect. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, so, so, so um, how are you doing during this time? Like I said, recording this on May 4th. Um, how are you, how are you and your loved ones? We're well, we're well, we're, we're doing well. Um, you know, it is unprecedented times. Uh, it's a very, very difficult times for the world. Uh, but, um, you know, we're, we're doing well. And thank you for asking. So let's get right into it. Diversity, equity, inclusion work is about marginalized identities. Yet the loudest voices in this space tend to be those of the majority, right? So when you think about like these big, you think about these big, big organizations, 
um, and you look at like the chief inclusion officer or the chief people officer, or the chief culture officer, they're typically white folks. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I don't think that um, the dominant group sees diversity, equity, and inclusion as being about marginalized folks. They see it as being about everybody. We have to include everybody. And so um, some of what my frustration has been, um, as uh, you mentioned, 35 years. And so uh, when we used to talk about it, you know, in the days of affirmative action, they were protected groups, right? And so the initiatives were targeted towards those protected groups. When we started to talk about it as being diversity, Then it broadened and everybody got included in diversity. And the group um, that gets least talked about now are black folks because they don't want to talk about black people. So I don't think that they I don't think that the dominant group who controls the narrative, I don't think that they see it about being about marginalized identities only. Right. And so uh, the focus may or may not be there, you know, um, uh, depending. And so we did a session for a client um, not too long ago uh, to talk about the relevancy of white men in the organization and so you know we've got to be inclusive of, of white men <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's why i think you asked me why i think that is that's why i think that is <laughs> so, so let's yeah. let's talk about that though. because in the corporate world let me just say this too. Yeah, in the yeah. corporate world we don't even use the word marginalized identities that's just that's so it's not a new term in sociology <clears throat> but let me tell you 35 years in this business it's a new term in the corporate world it's starting to be used and i think it is because of the influence of the millennials been doing some work in some organizations that is you know more millennial so some of these older traditional organizations been around 150 years still got baby boomers at the helm right some of these other organizations been around 15 20 years they got a lot of millennials at the helm those organizations are using this language the social justice language the traditional organizations not so much (laughs) so uh so I want to thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. That's that really is a really good segue into um, the next question I have for you about just you showing up doing this work as a black woman. And, and again, not to age you, we're talking about the fact that like <laughs> you're not it's not it's not like it's not like you're a black woman who just graduated from college and is like, you know, you're in this space or you just finished B school. Like you're someone who has seen this space grow and evolve and change and shift and permutate, you know, various times over um, over the past three and a half decades. And so I'm curious, like, what does it look like for you to operate in this space? And then specifically going into the example that you just provided, how do you respond to narratives like that, that, you know, white men need to feel just as included as black men or other marginalized groups? Yes. So as a black woman, in this work, cisgender, heterosexual, black woman, baby boomer, there, there are different ways that it, it, it impacts me. So one way that it impacts me is, oh, yeah, let's get Mary Frances because she can bring the voice of black folks. Um, no, Mary Frances brings her voice, not all black folks, right? Right, right. But that's one, one way. Um, this other way is, gee, we really can't hire the Winters group to do this. This is a black person talking now because you're black and I'm black. And, you know, the optics of it, it looks like we might be giving you, you know, preferential treatment. Right. The third way is if I when I stand in front of a group to the question about, you know, white men, I do if I'm going to if my message is going to get across, I do in some ways have to disarm white men because they're going to they see me coming in with my sister locks. And, you know, this black woman is going to come in and she's going to tell us, you know, how racist we are. She's going to make us feel bad. And so what I've learned over the years is that you've got to get them to like you first, no matter what. They got to like you. 
right? And they, and they have to um, think that the message resonates. So I learn the language. I learn the language of the organization. I connect my message to whatever their business plan is, whatever their business strategy is. You know, I connect it um, to that uh, because, you know, you're already coming in, you know, being black, being a woman. So those are two historic marginalized groups. And so, yeah, so, so there are different ways. And, uh, you know, you talk about code switching, right? Um, so we have to code switch a lot of times um, yeah. in order to get the work done, particularly in corporate spaces. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, um, well, I'm sure you've noticed because you know um, my colleague, um, Brittany J. Harris, who's the yes. vice president of the Winters Group. And we're doing a series right now in our Inclusion Solution blog on decolonizing DEI work. And, yes. you know, part of that, and I wrote a couple of weeks ago about decolonizing particularly the corporate world with, with corp, you know, the corporate speak. So you come in and they have to have a business case and the business case has to be, how does this help my business, you know, perform better? That's like the classic corporate business case. Right. And that's, you know, that's kind of centering this capitalist narrative, right? We're about the profits. And if you can show me by hiring black folks and hiring women, whoever else you want me to hire, if you can show me that that can help me to sell more, whatever I'm trying to sell, then it's okay. So I think that to some extent, you know, I was just talking to a very large client just before this. I will not name that client. Very old client, 100, 150, 160 years old, you know, very old, you know, you know, middle of the country. And, you know, just, just trying to get this stuff off the ground. And you've come in talking about marginalized groups and whatnot to a bunch of these white men. They're just not going to, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. So it's this delicate balance act of, of on the one hand, on the one hand, you, you have to be able to engage the group so that they listen and on the other hand you're trying to dismantle you know this dominant you know sort of a narrative uh that doesn't necessarily work and it hasn't worked I'm 35 years 36 years all of the same issues that i was teaching and talking about 36 years ago are the same as a matter of fact my book mm. black fatigue yes. will be coming out in february black fatigue how racism erodes the mind body and spirit comes out in february and i have a chapter in that book uh, chapter three called then is now and so mm. i go back and i look at data from whatever point you want to take you can take it from 1965 1975 doesn't really matter what point you want to take it um when we look at our data and our statistics we have not made progress we're we're stuck and we're at this standstill right, right. Brown, brown versus board of education was 1954 which was to desegregate schools our schools are more segregated today than then right. you know the civil rights act of 1964 you know all of this legislation housing in 1975 43 percent of black people own their own homes in 2019 43 percent of black people own their own homes Goodness the net worth and not not thinking you know net worth is is like you know what what you're worth right net worth a single black woman its net worth is five hundred dollars versus the net worth of a white uh, woman single white woman which is five that's still below the net worth of white people at 150 some thousand dollars is 10 times that of a black person and it it follows even if you look at college educated that's so right. a uh, somebody who has a phd who is a, a, a black woman college professor with a PhD, um, makes 20% less 
than a white man who has a PhD and, and uh, seven to eight percent less than a woman who has a PhD. And so yeah. all of these inequities, and I, I'm using those just as an example about then is now, yeah. that we haven't, we haven't really turned the corner. So we're fatigued. So they're talking about black fatigue. So, and it's a particularly tiring for me because I, like you said, I've been doing it for over 35 years. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> you know what? You're absolutely right. And I believe, or rather, I know I, we've had conversations about that on Living Corporate and we cite uh, the study Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain um, that really goes into dispelling the myth that higher education means, you know, will somehow close the, the wealth gap. And it, it hasn't. and it, it doesn't. Let's talk about this. There's a variety of folks that we've had on Living Corporate who have said that, um, you know, diversity and inclusion, corporate diversity and inclusion is inherently anti, um, not just in, in its external doings, but the internal politics. Um, do you have any thoughts on the veracity of that position? Well, society is inherently anti-black. So by extension, the corporate world is inherently anti-black. We live in a society that has historically and continues to be anti-black. I don't know. Yes, so I agree. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, right. so yeah, yeah. So you know, DNI is inherently anti-black. Um, it, it it is because that's the society. You know, this the society. And, and you know, when I wrote this book, um, Black Fatigue, and I was telling people about this. Oh, you know, you gotta, please write about Black and Brown fatigue. And you know, um, uh, and all all deference to um, Indigenous people and our Native people and and and. Um, Latinos and everybody, right? But the black experience in the United States has been different than any of those other experiences, and because of that, the stereotypes and the and the and the um, marginalization plays out differently. And so, I really felt a need, to, even though my dad in statistics, I show statistics for um, for Latinos and Asians, you know, um, as as well in the book. But I really wanted to focus on how this is playing out for blacks because let me tell you i say you know i used to use race i say race is is a diversity's four-letter word and particularly when you're talking about black folks you don't they people don't want to talk about it they don't want to talk about the black and whiteness of it let's talk about asians let's talk about latinos right and so this anti-black so that's that's one way anti-black plays out you know we we have to include the other groups that we have in our race. we had a call with a client just on friday and they talked about how the uh, psychologist, the sociologist, whoever we were quoting, I forgot who it was, was black. And so we're like, uh, yeah. And they said, well, you know, perhaps we need to get some other experts, you know, included in, in, in this data set. <laughs> and what's that about? What is that about? <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any Asian? Is there some Asian people who spoke on this too? Yeah, no. who are you talking about? <laughs> So, you know, so, so yes, I mean, yes, we live in an anti-black world. Um, and by extension, our corporations are, um, are anti-black. I mean, look at things like this recent legislation around the Crown Act. Why does anybody freaking care how I wear my hair? Why do Why do we have to have legislation for people to be able to wear, for black people to be able to wear their hair the way they want to wear their hair? You know, the young man, uh, was, was a, um, wrestler right yes and um made they made him cut, cut his hair his you know right his dread right exactly right there you know i mean why do you care you don't have to like what i say to folks when i say i don't care if you like it or you don't have to like my hair 
I'm not asking you to like my hair. <laughs> but are we, I mean, are we at such a, in a slavery, there's no freedom that we can't even wear our hair the way we want to wear our hair? I, you know what? I heard about hair 36 years ago when I was in the, the court. Well, no, wow. well, I don't know how many years ago. When I was in the corporate world and I have a very short um, afro. And one day a colleague, wasn't even my boss, colleague comes in my office and said, will your hair grow? And I just looked at him and I said, yeah. He said, well, you ought to let it. And he walked out of my office. Wow. <laughs> That's why I left corporate. <laughs> one of the reasons anyway. Goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, yes. So, yes. Is it an anti-black world? Yes, indeed. Indeed it is. Unfortunately, you know, um, it is. And when you say that, the problem is when you say that to white people, they think that you're calling them a racist. And I'm not. I'm not. What I am saying is, is the very foundation and structure upon which our very society and the way we think and the way we, you know, and the policies and all of those things are based on anti-black sentiments, anti-black beliefs, if you will. I'm I'm really curious about like, you know, because you're right. We had Brittany Harris on the show some months ago, some time ago, and we were talking about decolonization and, and dismantling and 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 deconstructing uh, systems, right? So like, it was more so about like, kind of like trying to make some shifts and some headway in this work because. Um, like you said, there's a lot of conversations that, that have just been happening. They've been recycling for years. And I'm curious to know, what are you seeing some other like DEI groups or like kind of names, things that they're saying that you're like, man, we've been doing that. Like, we've been working on that or that's not new. Like y'all think it's new, but it's not new. Like, does anything like that stick out to you? Yeah, I think that, you know, this the, the whole idea of, you know, the oppression, marginalization, privilege, all of those kinds of things, I think, have been out there for, you know, for a long time. I, you know, you can we all remember, um, those of us in this work all remember Peggy McIntosh's The White white Privilege. Uh, Judith Katz, my colleague, did something on heterosexual privilege back in the 90s. And the um, Peggy McIntosh's was back in the 70s, you know, brown eyes, blue eyes, which shows, you know, bias. We now call it unconscious bias. But Jane Elliott, you know, put that out. <laughs> In the, yeah. I don't know, in the 70s, 60s or 70s. I was using that video. Now that you've already dated me, I'll just keep going with it. But I no, was using I'm that so video. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're fine. You're fine. I'm just teasing you. You know, I was using that video in the 80s, right? And, and now I hear people like, oh, do you know about Jane Elliott's video, Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes? I'm like, yeah, you know, Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes. Yeah, that's been out there for years and years. And you see, that's the other thing in terms of why I wrote Black Fatigue is because, and I'm not saying this is about, this is not about millennial. This is not about generations at all, about thinking this stuff is new. This is about folks who are like in my age group, who this is all like a revelation, right? right. <laughs> we didn't know. So here's case in point. Um, we know that um, the um, COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting, particularly black people. And when it came out, this disproportionality came out, it was like, Oh, wow, we have health disparities? This is not new. Th- these health disparities have been, they've been well researched, well written about, and they continue. They have not improved. Even middle class black women are twice as likely to die in childbirth. You know, these are not new. And so that's what's, you know, part of the frustrating, um, the frustrating thing is. And so, I, you know, I, I really, you know, respect some of the newer folks who are coming in this space and I think that they're doing remarkable work and I'm hoping that perhaps 
they can put a different spin. I know Brittany has brought definitely a different spin to our work. We probably, well, when Brittany came on board, which was like four years ago now, I guess, um, we started to talk about the intersection of social justice and corporate speak because, you know, there were, the, the, the language was all different, right? Um, everything was different. So what we talk about mapping the intersection, what is the intersection of, the, of social justice and uh, corporations? So corporations worried about the bottom line. Why should they be worried about, you know, social justice as well? And how do we get that language? So I think at the Winters Group, we're a little bit further ahead of mapping that intersection of saying that it's not a one, it's not one or the other. It really is a both and because if you help to alleviate the social ills of this world or even of this country or even of the place where you operate your business, your business is going to be better. I'm right there with you. That segues well into this next question, which is just, you know, what trends do you see in this work? from a thought leadership perspective. And, and if you were to kind of like look across the landscape of this work and workplace equity as a whole, you know, where are the biggest places you think we have to grow? Where I see that we have places to grow in this work is fixing organizational cultures so that they truly are inclusive. And they it's, we're not just using the word and um, we're not just saying that we're inclusive because the surveys that we do inside corporations would suggest that um, the cultures are not inclusive, particularly, particularly for black folks, particularly. Mm -hmm. Now, when we do surveys with um, Latinos and Asians, culturally, they may not be having a good experience, but they're not going to tell us that because culturally they they don't talk ill. And I'm stereotyping. I know I'm stereotyping big time right now. But for the most part, Latinos and Asians don't speak ill of their employers. That's a cultural thing. Right. And so they're going to say, you know, everything's good. We you know, coming from uh, a history of, of dissension, a history of, 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 you know, sort of laying it out there. Hey, you know, we want, ju- you know, no, um, no justice, no peace. Give us we're, us free. Yes. Yeah. Right. We're, we're willing to say, no, this is not, it's not a good experience. We're willing to say in the survey. If we answer the survey, we did a big survey for a corporation uh, recently and um, th- not many black people answered the survey. So then I did a focus group of them and they said, oh, no, we're not answering that survey. They, they know it. They, they can figure out who we are because it's only about 100 of us in the That's whole company. Real, so, yeah. You know, so the point is, is that the traditional organizational cultures are designed for dominant groups. They always have been. In the 70s, when I was in the corporate world, they decided to bring in a whole bunch of black people, a whole bunch of black professionals because they didn't have enough. And they just said, let's bring them all in here. Within a year, every single one of them were gone except one. It was probably about 30 people. Every single one of them left because the culture was not friendly, was not conducive. There were uh, microaggressions all day long. Um, I think one, one, one microaggression, I told you about the microaggression about my, here's another one. So the company sent me to some banquet or something and I was sitting at, and I, I got to represent the company. So I was sitting at the head table and we had a little fruit cup, you know, uh, as our appetizer or something. And so the person sitting next to me said, oh, look at that. You have more watermelon in your fruit cup than anybody at the table. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you even say that? I mean, what, what, that? What, what would even make you? part your lips to speak like that what? Why what? You say that? yeah so and so you know what i did i said oh i said you like watermelon would you like mine i'll, I'll trade with you oh <laughs> <laughs> i 
So my point is, is that that hasn't changed in 30, how many every years that is, that hasn't changed. And so, you know, um, what, where we still need to grow is to really get at the culture. And the only way we're going to get at the culture is to hold people accountable. And because the experience that people have in their organizations are one to one with their direct manager, right? And so if the direct manager um, is not talking the talk, walking the walk, it's not happening for that person. We oftentimes focus on the, the top leadership, top of the house. Let's start at the top of the house. Yeah. I say that we need to f- focus on first line leadership. Those individuals who are um, most likely to have the greatest span of control. First line leaders have more reports than the CEO. The CEO has six or seven direct reports, right? All the senior vice presidents. Yeah. And it goes down from there. So the biggest span of control and the biggest opportunity for change is at that first level. And we oftentimes don't work with that first level of leadership because they don't have the budget for it or, you know, all of these other excuses. So I really think, and I've been saying this for years, so I don't know if this is a trend or not, but I've been saying this, this for years, that we have to get to that level. You know, other places that we still need to grow is um, pay inequity. You know, pay inequity for women is, you know, women of color in that equation too. That's an easy fix. You look at your data and you see who's not, who, if you have a disparity with women not being paid the same amount, then you, you fix it. You see, this is why if organizations wanted to do it, they could they just, do it. They just do it. Any aspect of diversity, if they wanted to do it, they would absolutely do it. So those are areas, I mean, it's in just terms of very tactical, you know, places in terms of cultures are really, really hard to change. So I had a call with a client this morning and they have a question on there. The survey that they wanted me to review their survey we have our own survey but they got somebody else to do their survey but they wanted me to review the questions here's one of the questions i fit in well at this organization mm, that's a good question that's like, huh that's no a, that's a bad question talk to me because, educate me why it's a bad question okay. because it's about fitting in fitting in is about assimilation fitting in is about i fit in meaning that um i'm adjusting myself no. I'm adjusting myself. I fit in, right? I mean, you still may get at it, but the whole idea of fit, even putting the language out there, so that's, you know, colonizing language, fit. You know, because what do we say when we, what do you say when you hire somebody? You say, oh, yeah, they'd be a really good fit. fit. Yeah. And what a really good fit means is what? They're like us. They're like us. It's interesting because the reason I was saying it's a good question is because I know a lot of black, I know for me, I would be like, no. Right, exactly. And that's what they're hoping to get. But but you see how the message could be from the from the other side is that you need to you need to fit in. But it absolves the organization of responsibility and onus in creating an inclusive work environment for that person. Exactly. Mm, exactly. Got it, got it. So I said, why don't you have the question? I feel included at this organization, right? I and mean, you can probably you can get the same answer, right? But you're you now using language that is is language that is about you know inclusion rather than fitting in because fitting in is basically saying, you know. Yeah, we, we need you to fit in. We need you to be like us. Mm, okay, okay. L- let's talk about this. Let's talk about black male presenting identities in this space, right? I could be speaking selfishly, uh, but it seems as if they're still not highlighted with the same level of attention or nuance of some other people groups. Am I being fair? You know, mm-hmm. if, if you agree with that, then could you kind of talk to me about why you think that may be? Yeah, so you, this is so interesting because the chapter in Black Fatigue, I Can't Breathe, colon, Black Men's Fatigue, 
And um, I have a chapter, I also have a chapter in the book called Say My Name, colon, Black Women's Fatigue. So for the Black Women's chapter, it's almost like twice as long as the Black Man's chapter, right? And I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, I say, is that because I'm a Black woman and I relate to the experiences more? So, yes. And you know what? I have been wrestling with this all weekend because I want to modify the chapter on Black men to bring more of that voice. So with Black women, I could talk about, you know, hashtag Black Girl Magic, right? Yeah. What's the analogous movement for Black men? There's nothing that big. I would say, you know, you have Black Boy Joy, but it's not as big. And there's some there's some tension in that because... A lot of black men are like, well, I'm not a boy. Don't call me a child. I'm mm-hmm. a man. You know, so mm-hmm. so I'm not sure. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. So I write in the book about um, two experiences, um, t- two stories I tell. One story is about somebody who actually um, now, uh, he, has a, he has a degree in human resources, uh, but he prefers to work with his hands. And he comes over and he um, tunes up our air conditioning in the spring and changes the filters and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So he was over the other day and he and he worked for a large heating and air conditioning um, organization and was doing really, really well. Had him in their commercials on TV and everything. And, um, you know, he said, but he just couldn't take it anymore. We, we would talk about entrepreneurship while he was still working there because you know, he knew I was an entrepreneur and everything. So he finally left and he's been on his own for 18 months. And he works 14, 16 hours a day. Nicest guy in the world. Got a young family. You know, just really very customer service. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, he said, when I go, um, when I go knocking on the doors, we say, I got to, you know, know how I'm coming. Like, he said, because when they see that I'm black, you know, they, they, they get a little afraid. Ryan is all of five foot six and, you know, maybe 150 pounds. He's a, he's a slightly Slight built man. Guy, yeah. And so, you know, he said, why is this? Why do, I, why do I have to exist like this where, you know, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to earn a living. I'm just trying to, you know, run a business. Um, and he ran into, while he was in the, the corporate world, they told him one time that, that he couldn't get promoted because he was so good at his job that they needed him to stay in that job. That's why he couldn't mm-hmm. be promoted because he was so good. <laughs> Another time he was told that he was um, promoting a particular service that they had, the organization, and they said, you're, t- you're selling too much of this service. That's why he couldn't be promoted. Goodness gracious. So that's one. Another black guy who'd been with his organization for over 30 years, very well respected externally because he was in manufacturing and he has this particular knack for, he was called the turnaround man. He has a particular knack for going into a manufacturing operation and being able to whip it into shape, you know, the KPIs and all those kinds of things. I mean, he's a, he's a guru at that, right? Lean manufacturing and all of that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, he's yeah. A guru at that. And they would always send him to the place that was performing the worst. And he would go. So then they decided they were going to put him in DNI. And uh, this after 30 years in a career. So he's on his element in DNI. He's going to do his KPIs. He's going to do his, you know, manufacturing operation. I think he turned us a few people off, right? So he ended up retiring early. No retirement party after all of this. He's doing so well on the outside because he's, he's got articles. He's got, um, he's well known in this, in this space. But he was kind of forced out the organization because somebody didn't like what he said. So I think, you know, black men, one of the parts of the chapter in my book, I have tall, dark, and handsome, right? So when a white man is tall, he's paid more. When a black man is tall, he's actually paid, paid less. Wow. The darker skin the black man is, the less that he gets paid, right? Lighter skinned black men get paid more than dark skinned black men. I believe so you that. So you take a black man who is tall and dark skinned, you know, 
that feeds a whole lot of you know stereotypes right um right you know and the handsome you know I, like i said in my book black women think they're handsome but you know <laughs> <laughs> but the majority group probably doesn't not so much right yeah. but you're penalized you're penalized you know black men are penalized you know for being tall you know black men are penalized for being darker skinned so my, my son who is he went to, to harvard duke and princeton he studied under cornell west he's a tenured associate professor of religion at duke university so when he was a kid he was always big. He's like, Joe's about like six, five. So he was always big. And they always told him, you know, you're going to hurt the other kids. You got to, you know, so he, he's this yeah. gentle giant now because he was told, you know, don't be too aggressive up until the fourth grade. There was something wrong with Joe all the time. We were always saying we had to see a psychologist. We, you know, he, uh, he just wasn't adjusting right. And he just, da, 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 da. all of these things. He was in a white school district and usually the only black kid, one of two in his class. So in the fourth grade, he had a teacher who was a white male teacher who said, you know what? He said, I think the only thing wrong with Joe is that he's brilliant. He said, that's the only thing I think is wrong with him. And as soon as Joe started to see himself as brilliant and everybody else started to see himself as brilliant, guess what? Joe became brilliant. And uh, voila, Harvard, Duke, Princeton grad. (laughs) But if somebody hadn't told him to change his self-concept, right? And, and so Joe writes about hip-hop and religion. He writes about the African-American experience. You might want to interview my son. His book is called Hope Draped in Black. I love to interview um, him, yeah. Let's, let's, let's yeah. talk about it offline for sure. Yeah, Hope, hope Draped in Black. But what he talks about is how you hold hope in the, in the wake of, you know, all of the, the oppression and whatnot. But, you know, we talk about, we talked this weekend about black men and about, you know, the hip-hop culture and the, the gangster. And, the, you know, we talk about all of that and, and how that plays out and, you know, why that is and, yeah, and so black men are very complex, very complex, and they have been, you know, treated the worst. So it's tied up in self-concept. It's tied up in a whole lot of, you know, and what um, one study found is that black men who, who have a good self-concept and are also able to know, figure out how to navigate, you know, the, the system, they do well in a corporation. But you've got to come first with a good self-concept. And I think quiet as it's kept, all that bravado sometimes with black men, you know, show me some respect and all right, that kind right, of right, stuff. Right. And I, and, you know, and I'm all, all of that. I think underneath is really a lot of, um, a lot of trauma. It's a lot of trauma. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, no, I think you're hundred percent. I mean, just spot on. Um, and I also think, you know, when you think about black men in this space, so it's interesting because black men and white women have something in common where black men are black um, yet they benefit to a much lesser degree, but they still benefit from to a degree from patriarchy and white women are women, of course, but then they benefit from white supremacy. So there's dynamics there that are nuanced in, in a way that black women don't. So black women are women and they're black. So they, right. right? So it's like, it's like, okay. It does, it's like, almost like you're like, you have no, there's no pool that you can pull from, or there's nothing that you can really pull from, from a position of privilege relative. Of course you have able-bodied privilege. And, and if you're ISIS gender and all those things, but like, if I'm talking, I'm talking about like, like at a high level, but I say, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about that because black men benefit patriarch, but it's like, but it shouldn't be hard to at least try to engage in the subject a bit more intentionally because I mean, it hasn't stopped white women from being the, the center of attention for diversity and inclusion efforts for decades. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. And so in the book, Black Fatigue, I question whether, you know, to to a certain extent, yes, I guess I would agree that black men benefit from patriarchy, but it's more intra-culture than it is inter-culture. Right, because black men ain't out here about to just be out here disrespecting white women at work. Right. Yes, that, that's there you go. I mean, yeah, not, not not unless <laughs> nobody better know about it anyway, right? Right. Well, shoot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And I think and that's <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Right. It blows my mind. Like I had a conversation. I never forget. I had this. This was some years ago. I had a conversation with somebody who tried to like insinuate that the reason why I spoke so much at work was because I was the only man, and and perhaps because as a man, I'm used to to dominating conversations. And I said, look, I might be the only man in this space, but I'm also the only black person in this space and certainly only black man. I said, so if you think that the reason why I'm quote unquote dominating this conversation is because I'm a man, y'all a bunch of white women, that's false. I said, I would actually be more akin to being quiet as it took me time to find my voice as a black man in white spaces. I said, I would challenge you to ask why you think you would use the language that I'm dominating anything by simply raising my voice in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I agree with you. I think that there's a, that there's again a lack of nuance when we talk about even how patriarchy is mobilized for black men. I think black men are benefited from patriarchy with other black people. They right. don't benefit from patriarchy like if it's me or Karen, Karen's gonna win out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And and for reasons like I was saying earlier, these studies show you know a tall you know, you, you got you've got your the, the stature if you will that's a negative. You've got the color that's a negative, right? And so I think that it is an intersectionality in white spaces. You're black and you're a man. It's a marginalized identity. So you know your, your colleague Brittany Harris, VP of Learning Innovation at the Winners Group, who we've had on um, in the past, um, has said that power is the silent P in this work. I'd love to hear more from you on the concept of power and how it fits into this engagement of workplace equity. Yeah, it is very much at the center and it's complex. And when folks have power, why would they want to give it up? So I am not a proponent of power and privilege discussions with novices in this work. So folks who have not I'm talking about people who are trying to teach. People who are trying to teach who have not had years of, of kind of understanding of how all this plays out. I'm not in favor of going in and telling them they have power and privilege. Yeah, I have it and I want to keep it. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> why would somebody want why you want to give them? You know, you, I'm standing, black woman standing in front of a bunch of white men talking about you, you have power and privilege. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and, and they would look like, you. yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, they don't say that. But, and the other thing is, how do they relinquish that power? I mean, that's really difficult to do. And the other problem that I have with that, so, so yes, there's this, this, this inequitable power dynamic. But the other problem that I have with that is that we are accepting that we don't have power. We're rendering ourselves powerless, right? And so in the corporate world, what is the key term? Empower. We want to empower our people. EM, right? Empower, right? Right. That is somebody giving you the power. So this is part of the corporate speak that I don't like, right? It's part of the dominant culture corporate speak. I should have written about that one in my book. I might still. Anyway, <laughs> I, want to turn, I want to turn that around, that EM to ME, me power. I have power. And so we have agency, we, but we, we don't take it. We don't use it because we have internalized that we don't have the power. We don't have power. This is one of the trends that I'd like to see not to continue to talk to folks about power and just use our power, not to magnify the inequity. So everybody knows 
that if you're a white man in a corporation and whatnot and you, you're the manager or the leader or the director or the whatever, everybody knows you got power. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't to tell me I got power. Why are you going to tell me that, right? And so I think that there are other ways to claim power. I think that part of that is just the confidence that we come with, the self-concept that we come with. Um, I think that we have to be ready to leave spaces because there are consequences for us exercising power and we have to have some safety nets, more safety nets than we have. So I left, you know, some 30 some years ago. I just stepped down on faith. I mean, because I have a strong faith and I didn't know what was going to happen, but I just knew I couldn't stay there. Right. We do know that women, black women, they're 40% more likely to start their own businesses than any other group, right? Because we recognize that it's traumatizing. And so this whole, this, this idea of, so who came up with the idea of power and power and privilege? White folks. Hmm. <laughs> to tell us <laughs> that there's a power inequity. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, and you know what? We're not going to change that by telling white people that they have power. That is not going, that is not going to change it. Right. The only thing that's going to change it is for us to claim our power. And to recognize that we have it. Hmm. I love it. No. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Um. <laughs> Stop telling white folks they, what they already know. They got power. They already know that. They know they have power. <laughs> no, it's true. No, it's true. Them not like screaming it from the rooftops doesn't mean that they don't know that. Well, exactly. Why would I scream it from the rooftops? Again, the dominant group is it's not something that they probably even perhaps but even when we call our their attention to it. There are many who will want to say, uh-huh, and let me figure out how I'm going to maintain it. There might be others who are curious, hmm, there is this dynamic. Maybe I should, you know, do something to work on that. But the forces are so strong and entrenched, right? Over 400 years of entrenchment, it's not going to change. You know, the, the two or three of the small groups that you might get who are all for shifting that power dynamic, they're not strong enough to overcome that larger group who wants to maintain the status quo. So we just have to take, we have to grab the power. We have to, we have to first of all understand we, ha- we have it already. It's not grabbing anything. We already have it. We just have to use it and accept that there will be consequences sometimes for using that power. And if we don't have the strong safety nets in our community to accept and, and to, to protect those folks who, you know, get fired, you know, are, are out there and, um, you know, being... Um, called out on social media because they're telling the truth or what do you know whatever it might be we as a people don't support and protect our own as much as we should man that's like a whole separate it is and and, and we need to do (laughs) and we need to do is make sure that we bring you back on when your book is close to being published and talk about that because i do think that you know how we so you know we had robin d'angelo on some time mm-hmm. ago and, and she talked about white solidarity and the concept of essentially the formal or informal closing of ranks that white folks do to protect one another um, oftentimes at the detriment or harm of black and brown folks um, right. and yet I don't you know be, because of colonization and because of just um, internalized oppression you know we don't have that I don't think in the same we don't you know yeah. um, mm-hmm. and, and and that, that's that's created so many challenges for us. I mean, um, since antebellum to today, right? Like we've we've had just so many issues because we don't necessarily practice to the same degree protection of one another. So let's do this. 
you know, as you look across these leadership groups, especially during this pandemic, what are some of the top things you believe that majority leadership groups are doing today that undermine their own workplace equity efforts? They have not educated themselves. So they think that they know, they think that their good intentions are good enough. So I've heard leaders say, I don't care if it's the right thing to do for business. You know, the business case that we talked about earlier, I just think it's the right thing to do. So now go forth and do it. However, because they don't have an understanding of the history or they know the history that was told wrong, they really don't know what to do. So they're making wrong decisions based on ignorance or lack of information. I think the second thing that majority leadership does, particularly in the corporate world, is that they still um, have to speak to and answer to shareholders. And so um, they're not going to do anything that is going to, you know, jeopardize that. And so even when you're looking at board members, and what I hear oftentimes is, you know, the board will go for that, or we've got to, you know, satisfy the board. Well, you need to change the board. Then the board may not be, you know, you may not have the right people because boards are tokenized, right? They have one token black person and one, you know, token woman on the board, right? Right, right, right. right. So those were two things. And I think during the pandemic, I think because of this ignorance, big companies are just not aware of the world that some of the folks on the lowest rung face. And so when you say, you know, shelter in place, stay home, that home may not be safe. That home may be filled with violence, right? You know, you make decisions about who are essential workers and who are not essential workers. Um, And you don't, you know, are you thinking about the health? Again, talking with a client today, they were talking about some of their contingent, you know, workforce. And they were saying, well, you know, are we going to pay, you know, the sick pay or aren't we going to pay the sick pay that's, you know, the time out, you know, and so all of these kinds of questions. And they realize that, yeah, we, you know, we, we need to do that. And so I don't think that there's enough understanding of what marginalized groups face, regardless of their socioeconomic. So they're making decisions from their own lens, from their own, use the word privilege, from their own privileged lens, and they're missing things. It's coming to light, right? A lot of stuff is not coming to light. But early, some of the early decisions missed the just horrific impact that this is having on everybody, but particularly those who are in the lowest low end of the economic chain. Mary Francis has been an incredible conversation. You know, I'd love to make sure that I give you space to talk a little bit more about the winners group, what you're most excited about, what you're looking forward to, even during times as uncertain and extraordinary as these. I'm going to love to just give you space to talk a little bit more about your company. Yeah, so we're uh, we're looking forward to transforming ourselves as we as we always do. But um, this pandemic has made it uh, absolutely uh, imperative. Um, we've already been doing virtual learning, but we are looking at innovative ways uh, to do virtual uh, ways that other people are not doing virtual. Um, you know, we have whiteboards and um, we have ways that we can break people out into groups. The, the technology allows that, but I think the ways that we're doing, we're doing simulate, sim, simulations. Um, and so I think this is an opportunity for us to be really, really innovative in terms of how we deliver our message. I did a virtual keynote uh, a few weeks ago. I think it's also an opportunity 
for us to continue our addiction of the corporate um, message and the social justice message because they have certainly come you know together with uh, COVID-19 in terms of just what I was just talking about how we see how marginalized people are even more marginalized you know the saying goes when the world gets a cold black people get pneumonia when the world gets pneumonia black people die we're seeing that now and we're I think it's the opportunity for us to even more um, strongly advocate for the intersection of social justice and corporate. Man, um, thank you so much, Mary Francis. This has been phenomenal. And y'all, uh, that does it for us on uh, the Living Corporate Podcast. Uh, you know we do this uh, every week, coming to y'all with real talk in the corporate world. Uh, you make sure you check us out everywhere, okay? So you pull up your Google or your Yahoo or whatever search engine machine you're using, um, and you just type in Living Corporate, we're going to pop up there, okay? Uh, make sure you check out the show notes. Uh, make sure you check out uh, the Winners Group. Check out all the work that they're doing. Um, shout out to the Winners Group and all of their incredible work. Shout out to black women out here holding everybody down per usual. Thank you uh, for all of your work. And um, shoot. Till next time, we'll catch y'all. This has been Zach. You've been listening to Mary Frances Winners, CEO and founder of the Winners Group, leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. Been out here laying the groundwork for y'all, setting legacies, and um, he's probably your favorite consultant's favorite consulting agency, okay? They've been out here. They've been doing the work. Till next time, peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.